1 Peter chapter 5. I'll read it for us and then I'll pray and then we can carry on. So, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is power to us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, how you remove the scales from our eyes and help us to see it as truth. And this afternoon, Holy Spirit, we pray that as you lead us to truth, you will lead us to see more of your Son. And as we see you, Jesus, help us to see grace help us to see that we have received heavenly riches things that even angels long to look into help us to trust that you are good and all you have for us in this moment and every moment to come is good Help us to leave this place not cheapening your grace, living lives of sin and chasing after our own desires, but help us to leave this place knowing that we are covered by the hand of the Father, covered in your grace. So help us to trust. Jesus, we thank you that your word is living, it is active, it is sharper than any two-edged sword. And so we ask by the power of your spirit that you would change us. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. It's sunset. Peter and the disciples have been enjoying the Passover feast with Jesus. They think maybe the evening's coming to a, a close, but Jesus has got other plans. He 
asks the guys to collect their things together. They're going to go on a walk. And so off they set. They head towards the Mount of Olives. As they're walking up, just a beautiful scenery and the smell of the olive blossom is in the air. Jesus is going on ahead. And as they reach the Garden of Gethsemane, he asks three of his disciples, James, Peter and John, I know you're tired. I know it's been a long day. I know there's all the excitement of everything, of all the celebrations, the feasts that we've had. But could you just, just stay and just stay awake? Be watchful and, and stay awake. But they're tired. They're bleary-eyed. Something interesting is going on with Jesus. They can tell that he's anguished. He's, he's suffering. He's feeling the weight of something on him. But time has takes over. And Peter's eyes began to droop and he falls asleep. Jesus comes back and wakes them up. Can you, can you just wake up? Just be watchful, be alert, pray. And so for a few seconds, we've all been there. They, they open their eyes, they, they're alert, but then just the tiredness of the body takes over and they fall asleep again. Jesus heads off, he's in anguish, crying out to the Father. There's another way, Father. He's sweating drops of blood. He comes again to the disciples and finds them asleep again. Wake up. Be watchful. Open your eyes. This time, as Jesus finishes his words, the soldiers come into the garden with Judas. They arrest Jesus and, and take him away. After a bit of a skirmish, Peter runs off, but eventually he finds himself where Jesus is in the temple court. Jesus is being tried, falsely tried by the religious leaders. They condemn him. They find him guilty of sins that he hasn't committed. They spit on him. They get the soldiers and the guards to, to punch him, to, to torment him. And Peter is there warming himself by a fire. A little girl comes along. I recognise you. Aren't, aren't you one of his disciples? No, 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 no. No, I, I don't know him. She goes away and Peter watches on as his, his master and lord is being accused and abused. This girl comes back. You, you definitely sound like, you sound like one of his disciples. You, you are, aren't No, 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 I, I don't know him. The girl leaves. Another man comes along. You're one of his disciples. No, I, I don't know him. And then the rooster crows three times. Jesus, as he's being led out from the core, looks Peter in the eye. Peter runs away again. It seems, if you read the Gospels, that even though he's not there at the foot of the cross, he does see it from a distance. He sees his Lord and his Saviour being flogged. He sees his Lord and his Saviour having his hands and his feet nailed to a tree. But Peter remains at a distance, feeling the weight of guilt and shame and fear because of his rejection of Jesus. Jesus dies on the cross and there's silence. No word from Peter. 
until Sunday comes. The women come to the tomb. They find the tomb is empty. They realize what has happened and they run to find the disciples. They wake Peter up. He can't believe it. He runs to the tomb. For 40 days, Peter walks and talks with Jesus and the disciples, with the resurrected Jesus, his Lord and Savior, who has conquered Satan, sin and death. They walk and talk for 40 days. They eat together. They drink together. They probably laughed and cried together. But we don't find one record in the Gospels of Jesus turning to Peter and condemning him and saying, why did you desert me? Why did you reject me, Peter? Why did you deny me? Except we find this interesting conversation where they're on the beach enjoying breakfast together jesus pulls peter to one side and says to peter do you love me lord you know i love you then feed my lambs peter do you love me you know i love you lord then take care of my sheep peter do you love me lord you know i love you feed my sheep Three times, Jesus restores him. No condemnation, no anger, no disappointment. You see Jesus given up on Peter. We just see grace. The man who had rejected his Lord and Savior just receives grace. Unfiltered, unconditional, pure loving kindness of God that's what grace is and that's what he receives from Jesus pure loving kindness towards an undeserving sinner grace and from that moment forward Peter's life is covered in every step he takes it is covered in grace grace in the moment that he is ministering and grace for tomorrow his whole life is marked by the grace of God Pure loving kindness towards an undeserving sinner. Peter's life is a grace-filled life. And I wonder, folks, as we come in here this afternoon, if you're anything like me, you've come in here and you're, you're weary from sin, you're weary from opposition because of your faith, you're looking ahead maybe to this week and thinking, will I even be able to get through this week, even tomorrow without sinning, without, without stumbling? You're feeling maybe the weight of suffering and pain. Maybe even in your life, you're thinking things are just getting worse and worse. I don't feel like they're getting any better. Or maybe you're looking at what's ahead and you're thinking it's too much. I want to encourage us all this afternoon There is grace for you in the moment that you stand here and grace for tomorrow. And in fact, the only way that you will reach the end and you will is because of the grace of God. The undeserved favor of God, pure loving kindness towards undeserving sinners. You know, if the Christian life is is like a book, grace is that glue that holds all the pages together. If you're a Christian, your life is covered by grace now and it will be there for you tomorrow. Grace has saved you, grace is keeping you and grace will bring you home. I think Peter, as he closes out this letter, he just wants one last time just to open the eyes of the churches that he's writing to, open their eyes to see the grace that they have 
and to encourage them that there is grace coming to them in every circumstance. And, and we've kind of sung it before already. We want to build our lives on the truth that God is for us, that there is grace for us. And I just want to open our eyes to that this afternoon. That we stand in grace and there is grace for us tomorrow. And so we're going to see three aspects of what it looks like to have a grace-filled life. And the first aspect really is Peter encouraging the church to find grace in, in the place that they call home. Remember, he's talking to a church who are exiles, who feel like they don't belong where they are. But there is one place that feels like home. Here. The gathering of God's people is home for those who are born again. And so Peter starts there and he starts with an encouragement to, to, to find themselves in the gathering of God's people in a culture of grace. And anywhere you look at a culture, if you think of the business world or schools or homes, any kind of place that you find yourself in, the culture of that place depends on those who lead it. And so in verse one, he goes directly for the elders of the church. Back on the beach, Jesus gave a call to Peter, feed my sheep. And now Peter goes to the elders of these churches and calls them, reminds them that they are called into the same ministry to feed the flock of God, to feed the sheep that God has given. He talks directly to the spiritual leaders of the church. And remember, he's talking to churches who are in a world of hostility. And he wants the elders, he wants the leaders to set a tone, to set a culture of grace. Verse 3, he wants them to set an example. Paul, uh, Peter, sorry, as he is writing this, we haven't got, I wish we had more time, we haven't, but as he's writing this, he's got his head at different points through the letter in the Old Testament. And at this point, he's got his head in the book of Ezekiel. We haven't got time to turn there. But there's an interesting bit in Ezekiel chapter 9, where Ezekiel, the prophet, is looking forward to a time where God's judgment will come and it will start, Ezekiel says, at the household of God. And if you remember from last week, there are the very words that Peter said. Judgment, and he's talking about testing, uh, humanity being tested for their faith is going to start at the household of God. And Ezekiel says, within the household of God, it's going to start with the elders. He's just pulling right from Ezekiel. This testing to see whether our faith is true, it will start with those who lead God's people. And if you know the book of Ezekiel, you know Ezekiel talks a lot about shepherds and sheep. Anyone, anyone read that? This, this picture of God's leaders, the leaders in, in, in amongst God's people being shepherds and God's people being sheep. And if you read the type of shepherds in Ezekiel, you will know exactly why God is bringing judgment on his people back then. Because the shepherds in Ezekiel's day were crooked. They were known within the community for being the most sinful people. And Peter, as he writes to the elders in these churches, saying, don't, don't be like those shepherds. Elders, don't be known for your sin, be known for grace. He gives them commandments. He says, don't shepherd the flock under, under compulsion. He says in verse two, don't shepherd them for shameful gain. Don't shepherd them in a domineering way. So don't shepherd them under compulsion like, like you have to. And don't shepherd them for shameful gain just because you're going to get money out of it. That's never going to happen in, in our kind of situation, I'm sure. Don't shepherd them because you're going to get power out of it. Folks, if you are aspiring to be an elder, be warned, they are the three ways that you will be taken out. Power, money, and influence. Peter says, don't lead like that. Instead, lead willingly, eagerly, and be those who set an example. 
be those who, who sacrifice for the sheep. You know, the first century shepherds were very different to the shepherds that we would know of today. Shepherds, when we think of them, we think of them running around with tea towels on their heads with, with crooks. And, uh, and we talked about the sheepdogs before, haven't we, and how much we enjoy. One man and his dog, I hope we've got some lovers since, since I said that last time. Lottie's maybe on board. There we go. But that's not the shepherd of the first century. The first century shepherd was rugged, was strong, was a defender. Like think of the type of guy you would meet at a nightclub, a bouncer, like those kind of guys. They were the shepherds in the first century. They didn't have dogs. The sheep followed the shepherd because they trusted the shepherd, because they were used to him protecting them and taking them to where the pastures were green. And, and Peter saying, they are the type of people that you should be elders, those who sacrifice, those who serve, those who defend the flock, those who take blows for the flock, those who are willing to lose. And you do that not under compulsion, not for money, not for power. You do it because you love the flock and you care for the flock. Folks, that is a picture of grace. Elders don't really get much out of it, apart from an incredible reward when, when we get to eternity. But that isn't why we work for you guys now. We do it because we love you. We lose because we love you. We sacrifice because we love you. That is grace. And it is down to the leaders of the church to build a culture of grace. Where it's not just us who serve in a gracious way, but we encourage one another to serve in a gracious way. And in verse 5, he encourages those who are young to submit to the leadership of the church, to be subject to the elders. And I think he picks out those who are young because in his Time and his culture, much like in our culture, it's most likely to be young people who resist authority. But really, he's talking to the whole church. Be subject to your elders. Elders will create a culture of grace, but they will only do it when they see themselves as shepherding under the chief shepherd. You see that in verse 4? Ryan and I aren't the chief shepherds of this church. Jesus is. You need to know, like, we've been around for three and a half years, just a bit more as a church. And I have apologized to you guys more. I've lost count. Honestly, I've lost count of the times I've had to sit down with some of you and apologize for things I've said that were wrong or things that I haven't said or things that I've done or not done. You know who's never had to apologize to you? Jesus. So before you follow us, follow him. And before we lead you, we take our leadership from Jesus. A culture of grace starts with Jesus. It starts with receiving grace from him and then modeling his grace as an example to one another. Remember the context that Peter is writing into, it's a context of suffering. And he is saying, and he said time and time again, glory is coming. We suffer now, glory is coming. And as we wait in between, we live grace-filled life. And part of that is, is being part of a culture of grace. The second aspect of the grace-filled life is having a covering of grace. Yes, the end is bright. In verse 6, he reminds us again, it is going to be suffering, but it is going to be glory later. In verse 6, he reminds us that the exaltation is coming. Humble ourselves, but, but, but a day is coming when God will exalt us. In verse 10, again, he reminds us that there is suffering now. We will suffer for a little while. But that is only for a while. There is eternal glory in Christ coming for us. 
Yes, it is tough now. Yes, we will suffer now. But we are heading towards glory. And that glory, he says, is going to look like a time where we will be restored. Do you see that in verse 10? We're going to be restored as we enter into God's glory. That means our minds, our bodies, our spirits will not be oppressed anymore. They will not suffer anymore. They will not bear the weight of shame anymore. Christ will restore us once and for all, for all eternity, as we come into his glory. We will be restored. Secondly, we will be confirmed. Oh, just think of the beauty of being welcomed into the promise promise of God. And for God to say, she's mine, he's mine. He's going to confirm us as his own. On that day, we will be strengthened. There will be no more weakness. There will be no more battle with sin. We will be strengthened by God for all eternity. And on that day, verse 10, we will be established. That means nothing will remove us from that place. That is a promise from God that is coming to you. Folks, isn't that a world that we want right now? Aren't you pining for that right now? Don't you crave that kind of life right now? We will take it. If we are born again, that will be our eternity. But we are proud to think that we will make it on our own. We will never make that on our own. Now, every one of us, whether we're Christians or not, dream of a world like that. Dream of a future and an eternity like that. But we will never reach it without the grace of God. And if we're not Christians, we need to hear that. In verse 10, it says, it comes by the God of all grace. We will be restored, confirmed, strengthened and established if we are in and receivers of the God of all grace. It is only the grace of God that will bring those things to us. If we're not Christians, we need to hear that and we need to put our faith in God that the only way we will receive the world that we all want and an eternity that we all want is by holding on to the grace of God found in the person of Jesus Christ. If we're Christians, we need to remember that as well. We need to remember that we will not reach eternity by by living a life where where we just try harder and we work harder. And we press in hard. Can I even say this? We will not reach eternity if, if our only aim and our only goal in life is to keep away from sin. That isn't how we reach eternity. We reach eternity by holding on to Jesus. By knowing that he covers us in his grace. We need to know that there is grace for us today. We have been saved by grace. There is grace for us today. And the only way that we will get out of our beds and breathe tomorrow is because God has grace waiting for us in the future. And when we receive that grace, that becomes past grace. And then the next day we rely on future grace that is coming again. The only way we will reach the end is by the grace of God for us. In verse 6, Peter gives this picture of of us living under the mighty hand of God. It's a beautiful picture. A picture of God's hand covering us. And we know, we know through the Bible, folks, that the presence of God is a place of safety, security, peace, rest, protection, and care. And that's why he says in in verse 7, look down and read it with me. That means we can cast all our anxieties on him. Because God's hand covers us, because we are covered by the grace of God, because he is one who cares for us, we can cast all our worries, cast all our anxieties on him. Because God's hand covers us, because his grace covers us. That means that we can hear from God. It's okay, child. It's okay, I've got you. I'm here. I'm 
here now and I will be here for you tomorrow. And I am better than whatever the world is going to promise you tomorrow. I am better than whatever your flesh is going to promise you tomorrow. I am better than whatever the devil will promise you tomorrow. In Greek mythology, there's a story of a man called Odysseus. Have you heard of him? Um, he's a, a famous sailor in Greek mythology, and he's made famous uh, because of this story of, of sirens. Like, you might have heard of sirens, these stunningly beautiful women who have uh, the, the most um, stunningly beautiful voices, like a little bit like my wife there. That wasn't planned at all, but I, I looked at you and I thought, I can't get out of this. If I say stunningly beautiful woman and stunningly beautiful uh, voice, and you're there and I don't acknowledge you, then I'll get in trouble. So there you go. <laughs> Um, not quite as beautiful and um, vocal as my wife. But there you go, these sirens, uh, angelic kind of creatures, but dark creatures. And what they would do as sailors passed through in the storm, they would uh, sing these incredible songs and the sailors would be drawn towards looking at them and they would be so overcome with the beauty of these sirens, these beautiful creatures, that they would throw themselves overboard, try and swim towards them and they would just get swallowed up by the sea and taken by death. Odysseus hears of, of what is going on. And so as a way to get through, as a journey to make, and he knows he's going to have to pass these sirens, what he does is he gets candle wax and he fills the ears of all of the sailors so they won't be able to hear the sirens singing. And he says to his sailors, tie me, bind me round the mast in the middle of the ship. I want to hear it, but I don't want to be, be lured in by them. So bind me up. And that's what they do. They get a rope and they tie him to the mast. And sure enough, as they pass through, a storm whips up and the sirens start singing, but the sailors can't hear and they just keep rowing on and Odysseus hears it and he and he begs the sailors untie me I, I want to go I want to go and they resist and they just carry on and they're focused and they keep going and they resist the temptation and resist the lure of those beautiful noises that are being held out to them it works but eventually it runs out. The enchanting songs are too strong. What is held out is too beautiful. Folks, we need to know the world, the flesh and the devil will throw so much at us. And we can try and avoid what is held out. We can, we can try and ignore what is held out. We can try and resist temptation by our own strength, but it will never work. As much as we try not to look as much as we try just to head on, as much as we try and close our ears and close our eyes, we will never be strong enough. There was another man in Greek mythology, a man called Orpheus. He hears the same story of the sirens. He hears of what Odysseus has done and how it's failed. He has another plan. Odysseus plays the harp and makes the most beautiful music in the harp playing. He doesn't fill his sailors' ears with candle wax he doesn't tie himself to a mast instead as they approach the sirens and the songs start he plays his harp and it is beautiful far more beautiful than the songs of the sirens and the sailors are captivated by his song and they keep on rowing and they pass through see the world will try and sing a beautiful song to us folks Satan, our flesh, will try and sing a beautiful song to us. Jesus' song that is found in the gospel is far more beautiful. And we need to listen. 
There's no point trying to fill our ears and, and keep our eyes kind of focused. We need to listen to Jesus. We need to listen to the sweet melodies of the gospel. We need to hear Jesus sing his lyrics of salvation over us day after day. That is the only way that we will reach the end. That is the only way we will resist temptation. That is the only way that we will be able to push back the laws of the devil is if we listen to Jesus. We cannot do it on our own. And here is why. Look at verse 8. The enemy himself is working against us. Be sober-minded, be watchful. And folks, as we hear those two words, they should ring some bells. Jesus with Peter in the garden. Peter, stay awake. Be watchful. Peter's mind is taken back to the garden in a time where he didn't. He took his eyes off Jesus, but now he encourages the churches, don't, don't you do what I did. You keep awake and be watchful because the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Folks, we need to keep our eyes on Jesus. We need to listen to the melody of the gospel because the devil himself is pursuing us and is against us. And Peter says he is about it the whole world over. Your brothers around the world, your sisters around the world are vulnerable just like you are and are under attack by Satan. So listen to the melodies of the gospel. Well, you know what's interesting? Peter, Peter describes the devil as a lion. Who's the lion? In scripture, who's the lion? Jesus. Why does Peter describe Satan as a lion? Well, here on Wednesday at, at GC, we're having a bit of a conversation about C.S. Lewis. And Beth put us on to, um, I went and had a look and it was hilarious. Put us onto a 1980s adaptation of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. If you haven't uh, YouTubed it, YouTube it, but just YouTube Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, BBC, Beavers. And there's something quite spectacular on there. So the, the recent Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, right? It's CGI, lots of money spent, and the beavers are real-sized beavers, but they can talk, and they look mystical and magical. Back in the 1980s, they didn't have that kind of technology, and so they literally dressed up a guy, same, in fact, he was bigger than anyone else, dressed up in a brown suit with a kind of stuck-on nose and stuck-on ears with a, a human face. It's basically, you can see it's just a guy dressed up as a beaver. And back in the day, everyone's like, wow, yeah, Oh, great, sir. great adaptation there. Just look. No, it's a, it's a man dressed up as a beaver. That's what it is. Folks, I think Peter tells us that the devil is prowling around like a lion because he's trying to be someone. He's trying to present himself as someone else. He's trying to deceive us. He holds things out to us, things that, that might look like grace, that might look like goodness, just like Jesus would. But really, these things lead us into destruction. He presents himself as a kind of Christ. But if we follow him, we just follow him into destruction. And so Peter says, resist him. Have your eyes open. He's coming. Resist him. But don't fear him. Stand firm in your faith. Yes, he is coming as a lion. He's coming as a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Now, now the, the lion's interesting, but so is the lion's roar. I don't know if any of you watch like Planet Earth or Discovery Channel or whatever, where you see lions. 
You know when lions are kind of stalking, trying to, trying to catch their prey? You don't hear them roar. They don't roar as they kind of jump on and grab something. They're quiet. You know when lions are roaring? When they're being attacked. When they're weak. When they're vulnerable. When they're defeated. The devil is defeated, folks. He might think he can come and take you. He might think he can come and devour you. But he is a defeated enemy. So yes, have your eyes open. Yes, see that he is coming and trying to lure you away like the sirens. Stand firm in your faith, knowing that Jesus is stronger and knowing that he cannot take you. He is defeated. And that's why he has to roar, because he's on the back foot, praise God. Grace-filled life looks like immersing ourselves in a culture of grace, knowing that we have a covering of grace over us. And finally, it's finding ourselves in a community of grace. These last few verses, verses 12 to 14, these are the kind of verses that we just skip on and move and get to the end and go into 2 Peter, right? But actually, there's something wonderfully beautiful going on here. Remember the context. This is Christians who are struggling. They're facing the hostility of the world around them. Peter, Peter connects with it. In, in verse 13, he says that he's in Babylon. That's a, another word for Rome. But really, when we look through the Bible, Babylon is another word for, for kind of worldly systems, those who oppress and reject God. He knows what it feels like to be in a culture of hostility. He feels it in Rome. There are multiple sources of, of attack coming towards the, the church, of discouragement coming towards them, of temptation coming towards them, of suffering coming towards them. And Peter encourages them in these last few words to stand firm. And what does he say to stand firm in? Stand firm in the true grace of God. Stand firm in the true grace of God. We need grace now, folks. We need to stand in it now. And Peter, remember, is writing to churches. We won't read this on our own and and kind of take that as a singular encouragement. Yes, I need to stand firm in, in the grace of God, but that isn't how it was written at all. Peter is writing to a community. He's writing to a gathering. He's writing to a church. And so it's as if he would say to Liberty Church, Liberty Church, stand firm. Stand firm, Liberty Church, in the grace of God. He's calling us together to stand firm in the community of God's people. That's why we can be a community of grace, because we stand firm together in the grace of God. And he gives us a picture of what that might look like. Just listen to the affection that that he, he writes with as he ends out in these last few verses. He talks about Silvanus, a faithful brother. Oh, I need to talk about you guys and you sisters like that more often. Ella, my faithful sister. Andy, my faithful brother, why don't we talk like that anymore? Let's, let's love each other and show show that we are a grace-filled community in the way that we talk. He talks about the church who are are in Babylon, being the chosen ones. Why don't we say that? Church who are in Lark Lane, Liberty, God's chosen ones. He talks about Mark, my son. Oh, I love the affection there. Treating each other like sons and brothers and And fathers and mothers, this is a grace-filled community. And do you see how it's held together? Like yesterday, I don't know if you had a chance to drive around after the storm. Trees coming down, uh, walls coming down. Uh, It's a good lesson, and Alan will affirm this um, to the hilt. Uh, It's a good lesson of how you build a wall. Uh, Like if you just 
have a brick. That's not a wall. That's just a brick. Like I can just push that over, right? It's not going anywhere. What if I get a row of bricks and kind of lay them up and stack them on top of each other? It looks like a wall. It looks good like they're together. Like, like there's, there's, there's a sense of community of bricks there. But the slightest push, what's going to happen? Come on, work with me. It'll fall over. But what if in between each brick there's a bond? Mortar. Strong stuff. Holding it all together. And we let it set. Now if I try and push it, what happens? It stands. Thank you, Andy. It stands. See the mortar that holds together the, the community of grace? It's love. <laughs> Stand firm in the grace of God. And the thing that will unite us together is love. Sylvanus, my faithful brother. Church in Rome, the chosen ones. Mark, my son. And then see how he ends it. We're all waiting for it. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Okay, where's he going to go with this? <laughs> I get it. I get why he ends like this. Because the mark of a community of grace is love. And all right, it might not be a kiss. What is it? How do we show our bond of love together? Guys, can I say it's not a handshake. I don't know what you ladies do. I don't watch you close enough, but it's probably not that. I think it's something more. I think we need to figure that out and work it out. What does, what does our holy kiss look like? And it isn't just a kiss. It's a holy kiss. It's something that looks different. It's separate. It shows us to be God's. Here are the three aspects of the grace-filled life. We immerse ourselves in a culture of grace see that we have a covering of grace and we find ourselves functioning within a community of grace a community of grace bonded by love folks the Christian life is hard Peter has made that so clear to us suffering is coming we are going to continue to contend against sin we are going to live in a world hostile to our faith to Jesus we are going to feel pain we are going to feel grief he has called us, Christ has called us to live holy lives, to act with a countercultural submission towards one another, to suffer well, to resist the devil, to hold on to the grace of God as we do in every circumstance, to stand in it, to immerse ourselves in a culture of grace, and to be humble enough to know that we can't make it on our own to open our eyes and see the covering of grace in which we stand. And to see one another, to live in a community of grace that is bonded by love. And the fruit of all that, well, look down with me at the last line. The fruit of all that is peace. This is the last line of the letter, folks. I wonder maybe as the application, we say this together. We say this in a genuine, heartfelt prayer that we would all know the peace of God. We say this as a, as a commitment to be people who love one another, to encourage one another, to open our eyes, to see the grace of God that is over us. To submit to those who are leading us in a culture of grace. Grace. 
And so why don't we do this? Folks, why don't we stand together? I'm reading from the ESV. If you haven't got an ESV, why don't you just look over your shoulder at someone who's got it? This might be cheesy. It might be corny. But why don't we look at each other as we say this together? As a blessing and a prayer over one another. Just this last line. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Okay, can we say it together? Let's go. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this letter. We thank you for the anchor it is to us in in a time of hostility, in situations of suffering, in the tangibility of pain and grief and sorrow. We thank you for how you've called us closer to one another and closer to you. Father, we want to hold on to you. Just put away all of the bravado, all of the pride that that says to us that we can make it on our own. And even just this afternoon, maybe for the first time in a long time, help us to hold on to you and to receive your grace in this moment. To know your peace. Open our eyes to see that it covers us. It's all around us. It has never left us from the day you saved us. And it will be there all the way through eternity. Thank you that we stand in it now. And help us as your people to live this grace out as we love one another. Help us to figure out what that looks like. It's more than a kiss. It's more than a hug. We know that. So help us open our eyes to see what it is to be a body who loves each other. In a way that looks different. In a way that is genuine. Father, we thank you for your grace. All of it undeserved. Continue to open our eyes to it. Continue to help us to see you that we stand in it and continue to help us to long for the day when we meet you face to face. A day when we will be restored, confirmed, strengthened and established for all eternity. What grace. (laughs) Father, we pray these things in your son's name. Amen.